0: We are proud members of the Spy Podcast Network. Find out more at www.spypodcasts.com.
1: Welcome to Spy Hard's podcast, where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And Scott, gum. 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 Stick it under the table, Cam. (laughs) I genuinely thought you'd introduce yourself as Poobah.
0: Oh, that's a good one as well. Yeah, yeah.
1: Mm. We'll get back to Pooba. But um, Cam, I think we might have done it this week. We might have gone so obscure that we might actually delete our own podcast. What are we talking about?
0: We're talking about 1934's British Agent, directed by Michael Curtiz and starring Leslie Howard. I have to believe these are names people know, but I don't. We'll talk about My- Michael Curtiz, who, one of the big old-school Hollywood directors... Uh, and Leslie Howard is in a lot of films of that era. Kay Francis as well. So it definitely has people who would be very recognizable at the time. Um, but it's not really. This movie is not one that, if you you know, googled their names, is in the first three or four mentions of their work. Mm. It's interesting because I put a a little tweet out about this episode earlier today, and we actually got some responses to it. People have
1: seen it, and they right. did like. And there's actually a bit of trivia I've got for our you know breakdown section
0: that I don't it's not an imdb oh i've had uh i had a far easier time finding trivia for this movie than say even probably gotcha something like that wow really that's mm-hmm. surprising oh. actually well oh, this one was really easy for me
1: so there obviously is people who hold this film in, in high regard they hold it in
0: regard <laughs> they hold it <laughs> they hold it <laughs> <laughs> like like the gum yeah
1: well, just to prove my point uh, in terms of being so obscure, we will just sort of invert, like dividing by zero. Let's look at the letterbox.com
0: synopsis. Okay. Is it... Now, I, I'm, before you read it, I'm wondering if it's going to be a history lesson, basically paragraph, or is it going to be, you know, a one or two sentence character-driven plot summary? Let's find out. Scott, go ahead. Do you care to, do you care to gamble? No, I want to hear what it actually is I think it's more fun Just to let you read it Okay British agent, 1934 Please insert synopsis here Oh Oh They don't have a synopsis on Letterboxed, huh? No, I'm kidding It actually gets worse Oh, okay An Englishman falls in love with a Russian spy Okay (laughs) That's uh, pretty vague. Did you pull up the IMDb one by any chance? I, I can. I okay. I have it open just to maybe yeah. give it a second shot. I mean, this one. Oh, <laughs> oh. Do you, remember, uh, do you remember pitching a tent? Uh, yeah, I do. Yeah. Wait, yeah, I <laughs> <pitch it. laughs> what? Wait, hold on. Do I remember pitching a tent? I mean, I remember that joke from an episode. What was it in relation to again? Oh, that's right. Okay, it's coming back to me. It was the very long synopsis. And you weren't familiar with that (laughs) very (laughs) kind of dirty North American saying, yes. Okay. (laughs) Well, pitch a tent,
1: folks. Here it comes. It's 1917. In Russia, the Communist Revolution is in full swing. Stephen Steve Locke is a British agent in Russia. The main task of Steve is to prevent the Bolsheviks, led by Joseph Stalin, to sign in Petrograd a separate treaty with the Germans. Germany had been at war with its neighbors. Steve has to deal with Eleanor Mora, the attractive secretary of Lenin, and a spy too. Steve falls in love with Elena. That's better. Um, Well, it's not. It's not a synopsis. It's like a narrative retelling of the story.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is a really tough one, I think, because... If you were alive in 1934, I think the events that transpire in it in terms of Russian history would be a little better known just through the, you know, the press at the time. Mm-hmm. Visiting this movie in 2022, I think a lot of viewers would be kind of baffled as to what's going on. Yeah, I had to uh, call up my brother, who is a history major. He actually teaches history, mm. uh,
1: ancient history, but he knows a lot about the both world wars. Um, just to sort of get, you know, the actual historical line on what happened, and maybe contextualize it a little bit. I don't, I don't have anything to sort of recite. I would just tell people to go check it out on Wikipedia. But the Bolshevik uprising in Russia—it's it, a. This is based off of a real story, I suppose. Is the point of our discussion here? Um, although I do like the phrase uh, "pitching a tent" when it comes to uh, synopsis now, or maybe we like the really short ones. We call them. The British agent.
0: Mm, Yeah, the British agent, yeah.
1: Yeah, and then the long ones are called Pitching a Tent.
0: (laughs) Now, (laughs) I have a question for you. You know, you are Agent Scott on this podcast, and you are British. When you knew you were tackling British agent, were you hoping for more of a movie that could reflect on your own persona, the one you could hold up and be like, British agent, that's me. Well, I, I actually
1: wouldn't want someone based off of me as a British agent because people who wear, like, lounge pants 90% of the day. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I, I don't think I've ever worn a tuxedo in my life. I, I'm probably not the poster boy for British agents. Right, okay, fair enough. But uh, I, I would much rather be uh, Stephen Locke. He he seems like a man who's uh, got it sussed out.
0: Yeah, yeah, he seems very capable.
1: Although I would like to be called Poobah. <laughs>
0: Wouldn't we all? (laughs) (laughs) Um, but (laughs) I think
1: we should take a seat on this lamppost and figure out how the hell we got
0: British Agent. Right. Yeah. Because neither one of us have seen this movie before. So we don't have any earlier experiences other than me just being, uh, quite familiar with the work of some of the participants in the movie. But yeah. And a little bit of inside baseball. Usually I would
1: say that bit Cam just said before. But, um, we had a different film prepared for this episode, but it just turns out you can't get it anywhere. So this was like a last minute pivot. So we had to sort of pick this film out from our list. But we had a lot of prep. I think Cam even watched a film of the director we were going to watch in preparation and then we didn't even cover it in the end.
0: Yeah, I'll give a little teaser for those that feel like doing some secret agent work of their own. I watched the movie Destination Moon from 1950. I will leave it at that. Ooh. You are the true British agent. Mm. Indeed. But yeah, let's take a seat on this lamppost. Spill the beans. Okay, so British Agent was based on a book by R.H. Bruce Lockhart, who was a British diplomat, journalist, footballer, author, and dot, 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 secret agent. Oh, boy. Uh-huh. What a CV. What a CV. That's right. I mean, you go back in time and you look at like the CVs of, like say, like Leonardo da Vinci. He has, like, 12 jobs. If you ask me, I have got, like, I don't know, two? <laughs> it's very unimpressive. Do you count Podcaster as one of the two jobs? I am going to, yeah.
1: yeah I suppose I've only got two. We're very unimpressive. Does does like does dog dad count? No. <laughs> oh. No. <laughs> okay. Definitely two then. Yeah, I I, I I aspire to the uh to the uh author's set of skills. Right. Particular set of skills.
0: Uh, so nonetheless, Lockhart um, worked for the British Foreign Service, and he was part of a failed uh, effort to sabotage the Bolshevik Revolution in Moscow in 1918 by breaking up a potential peace deal between Russia and Germany. There was concern at the time that if Russia and Germany, you know, made peace, that Russia would release German prisoners of war who would then flood back out and cause a lot of problems for the British during World War One. And so that was kind of the... the notion of what was going on, and so Lockhart was going to try to uh, prevent this peace deal from taking place. He was working unofficially. The government was going to disavow any knowledge of him doing any of this, but that was essentially what he was doing. So his job was basically to make a tough sell to Lenin without the official backing of the British government, and um, Bruce Lockhart published an autobiography called Memoirs of a British Agent in 1932. This book was an instant bestseller. This was like something of a phenomenon in 1932. And so Warner Brothers snapped up the rights very quickly. And their hope was that Barbara Stanwyck would star as the Elena Mora character. Because Stanwyck was a huge star of this era. But she turned it down. But like Warner Brothers was just trumpeting this story as some of their quotes from the time. The greatest human document of the century. The most important dramatic event of the year. This was also the most expensive film in Warner Brothers history at the time when they were making this. Like, they believed in the story of Bruce Lockhart. I, wow. Okay, that's a lot to take in just at the early stage
1: of this uh, sort of you know, briefing section. So, okay, the most Warner Brothers have spent. Now, I, I, could, I can argue that's probably true. I think that is on the screen. I think you can see that. Yeah. The quote about the book, did it say
0: in the last century? Um, the uh, greatest human document of the century. Of the century. I was just trying to think of what else came out
1: in the last hundred years since the 1930s.
0: Yeah, because you've got to look at it from the point of view of like 1932 or 3. Mm. I'm sure there's a few
1: good novels. I was thinking like, oh, the Bible's probably going to win that argument, but the Bible was made a long time ago. Right. Okay, all right. I- I'll-, I'll accept that for now. And the Lord of the Rings was like a decade later. (laughs) There's got to be... There's definitely
0: got to be more, though.
1: Like, you know, war and
0: peace, stuff like that. that, Isn't
1: that all pre-this?
0: I'd have to start looking up these dates. I I don't know. When was crime and punishment? Yeah, I don't know. Fair enough. Well, please continue. So the book was actually very critical of Great Britain. And so when British censors found out that Warner Brothers was going to make this into a movie, they were like, hold on, slow your roll be very careful and start filing down the edges or this movie may not be playing in Britain. And so that was something that was very much taken into account when they adapted the book into the movie was to not make it critical of Great Britain because obviously they wanted the money that would come from a Great Britain audience, right? Okay, I wonder, I'm wonder. i wondering what the book was sort of critical about because they do
1: sort of leave uh, the Leslie Howard, Stephen Locke character kind of high and dry in Petrograd. Hmm, yeah, yeah in the story like they, it, they make a point of saying that and he does make a couple
0: of um, small jabs at the, at the British government I would say well I think this is the moment where you want to make your big announcement that you are actually going to read the book British Agent and do a solo commentary on the film that will drop next week right
1: <laughs> yeah that's a Patreon exclusive I'm sure you'll all be uh, <laughs> diving to your nearest Patreon uh, websites to <laughs> subscribe Uh, I'll put it behind our
0: 100-pound tier, just so uh, (laughs) only only the true spyhards can hear it. That's right. So they brought in screenwriter Laird Doyle. Now, his career had started in 1932 with a film called The Phantom Express about a mystery on a rail yard. And he would do a number of very star-driven films. Like he did a um, Jimmy Cagney movie called Jimmy the Gent. He did a William Powell movie called The Key. And then he followed up The Key with this film. And he actually died just uh, two years later in 1936 at the age of 29 after an airplane crash.
1: Wow. Which actually kind of connects him to the star of this film, who has quite a tragic
0: early death too. Well, you know what? Let's keep the tragedy train going because um, this movie also had dialogue contributions from Pierre Collings, who was a writer who had started in 1925 with a movie called Woman of the World. And... um, He had, later on, with his penultimate film, done a a film called The Story of Louis Pasteur, which he won um, two Oscars for, for Best Original Story and Best Screenplay. He did did this film and just, you know, worked on the dialogue and Mm -hmm. did not get credit for it. But he died in 1937 at the age of 37 from pneumonia. There is a curse on British agent. I'm glad I didn't see myself as British agent then. Otherwise, it'd be coming after me next. (laughs) Yeah. So... Yeah, like a lot of uh, just tragedy with uh, the writing credits on this film. But let's talk a bit about the director. Now, the director is Michael Curtiz. He was born in Budapest, and he was a director and actor initially. And, you know, he got his start in 1912 in a movie called Today and Tomorrow. And at that point, he was working under his birth name, was which was Curtiz Mahali. And he became very prolific in Hungary. He shot 38 films, you know, for his uh, home country. And then um, I said he was very prolific. Now, Scott, what do you think is the most number of movies he shot in a single year?
1: Most number of films in a single year. Now, given the average length of a film at this point was a lot shorter.
0: Yeah, it's it's in the era of shorts um, and also the era of silent films, which silent films are often, you know, 45 minutes to an hour. Okay. And how many would the average director now put out a year? I mean, nowadays...
1: At best, two. Okay. I'm going to go
0: with six. Thirteen. Wow. My man's busy. In the year 1917, he did 13 films. That's like two sets at once. That's got to be
1: running between things to direct them.
0: Yes. Fair play. So in the early 1920s, he began directing for other European countries and adopted the name Michael Curtiz um, with 1924's General Babka. And it was shortly after this period that he caught the eye of Warner Brothers' head, Jack Warner. And so he ended up moving to America in 1926 and launched his career with Warner Brothers um, with a film that's fairly forgotten called The Third Degree. But over the course of his career, he'd become incredibly prolific as an American director as well and had an incredibly versatile career. and He did movies like Captain Blood with Errol Flynn. He did The Adventures of Robin Hood, also with Errol Flynn. He did Yankee Doodle Dandy with uh, Jimmy Cagney. He did Casablanca, White Christmas. You go through this guy's filmography, you're just going to see an endless string of classic um, old Hollywood films that I think the reason you don't necessarily know the name Michael Curtiz is because he didn't have sort of that Hitchcock distinctive style. He was not a john ford he was a guy who could take on pretty much any project and really elevate the material but would kind of adjust his style and stamp depending on the material so he's incredibly important in old hollywood but not the iconic visual stylist i think we think of when we start looking at auteurs he's more of a ron howard he's better than a ron howard but he definitely fits that sort of mold yes
1: Able to adapt to what you need him to do, but not really flashy enough that has his own
0: style. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Just like one of the great craftsmen, almost even maybe like a bit of a Richard Donner as well.
1: Okay. Well, I mean, I've seen Casablanca and White Christmas, so even I've come across him, I guess. Mm -hmm. I I didn't know them. I didn't recognize the name, but I'm terrible at that stuff anyway. But okay, so I now
0: know the director, did this film. That's kind of cool. Yeah, and his final film was the John Wayne Western, The Comancheros, in 1961. He actually lived a decent life. He passed away in 1975, um, just one year after The Comancheros in 1962. Uh, at the end, though, he had 178 directing credits.
1: That's, that's like an aspirational number for... Uh, actually, that's an aspirational number for like, a good
0: director. That's the sort of number you see with like character actors.
1: Yeah, when you go on their IMDb and they've just done like a TV episode, a TV episode, a TV episode. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that would almost seem like it was not fake, but
0: like, what's the word? Manipulated. Manipulated. Right. And I mean, there were other directors who were incredibly busy. John Ford made a ton of films as well. I think if you worked in that silent era, you were just like shooting things constantly. So that definitely racks up the numbers. Hitchcock also did a, you know, reasonably high number of films. But nowadays you see directors who look at Quentin Tarantino. He's done, you know, like basically he's going to do his 10th film and call it a day. And that's since 1992. And you compare that to like a Curtiz who was doing like 13 films in a year. I've done 10 last week. What are you talking about, son? Yeah, <laughs> That's right. Um, at, you know, that era, they weren't as precious about their art. They were there to work for the studio. And in the case of Curtis, he got a lot of great scripts and knew how to shoot them incredibly well. But also there was less pressure in a sense where like, you know, you, you, do, you can get a, it sounds like you can
1: get a film done in a month. If you go by 13, it's close to a month. Yeah. So if you're constantly working. Yeah. Not a lot of like 18 month films in those days like there are now. You're not, you're not sitting around trying to get the mo-cap on Tom Holland just right. Exactly,
0: exactly. So um, Jack Warner really believed in this project. As I said, it was incredibly expensive for Warner Brothers, and he was even trying to send a film crew to Russia for a location shoot, and uh, those requests were denied, so it did not happen.
1: <laughs> well, they, I mean, the it had happened by that point. The, mm-hmm. It They were, well, yeah, the Bolsheviks had taken over, I think, by that point. And, yeah. Yeah. So that makes sense. the The whole like decadence of of uh, Western civilizations was kind of frowned upon at that point, I believe.
0: Yeah, I think that may have been a bit of a a uh, pipe dream that that was going to be the case that they'd be like. Makes to a do good that.
1: Uh, makes a good press clipping, I suppose.
0: Oh, definitely. And also, you know, you had the star Kay Francis, who was a pretty major talent of her time. But it was actually during production of this movie that she had a life threatening injury. Uh, it was not while working. It was an evening after a day of production, and she severed an artery in her right hand, uh, and she said it was from breaking a window because she forgot her keys, and she barely survived. It was her maid that actually was able to fashion a tourniquet, but much was said that um, this was also potentially a suicide attempt. It was never confirmed, but if you look up a lot of biographies, they kind of talk about Kay Francis and just some of her health issues, and it seems like it's one of those question marks that's a little suspicious.
1: Okay. Well, that's, um,
0: that's sad to hear. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of tragedy with British Agent, right?
1: Well, yeah. And, uh, I mean, we haven't got back to it, but like Leslie Howard had quite an interesting career himself because he was also a spy. Yeah. Uh, and then died during World War II as a spy. Quite the uh,
0: strange web this film has uh, woven. Yeah, just one of those weird coincidences where it's just like everyone affiliated with this movie seemed to have a lot of issues, except for Michael Curtiz, who seemed to make it out okay. But yeah, very interesting. Um as I said. So as I said, the budget was very high on this one. They spent four hundred and seventy-five thousand in you know, nineteen uh, thirty-two dollars or thirty-four dollars, so that's quite expensive. Domestically did five hundred International three hundred and ninety thousand for a worldwide total of nine hundred and twenty two thousand dollars and uh I did the inflation calculator on that. It's about twenty million dollars nowadays. It's so bizarre that you like there's
1: films that we try and track from like the sixties and you can't find anything, yeah, for this you've got the whole international and you know domestic uh-huh.
0: That's crazy. Why is it with just this film? Like, what, what's up? Is it because it was a hit? I suppose there was actually a K. Francis fan site that had done the research on this and actually talked to people. I think at like the UCLA film department and whatever they'd been able to track down actual figures for this one. That's not the case for most movies. I think this was just luck of the draw because. Someone out there was very invested in Kay Francis, and I'll post a link to their page in the show notes for this episode because it was very helpful and has a lot of information on her just as a talent, more than we'll be able to go into just in this review. Um, But I did find a quote. They said that this was higher than usual profits. So, like, if you look at that number and go, like, I don't know, is that that much? They said at the time it was higher than usual profits for a Warner Brothers film. So it was a hit. But... When you actually hear the number $20 million, in comparison to what movies make nowadays, you kind of shrug. But, eh, you know, it was what it was. How much are they charging for movies in 1934? Like, five cents? Stick of gum? Yeah. <laughs> gum?
1: <laughs>
0: gum? Yeah.
1: Um, yeah, I, I can see that. I, I, it was weird when you said, like, 900000 ish but it, it felt like it was a hit.
0: Mm-hmm. Like, just from watching this film, it felt like it, it must have done well. It did well enough. Yeah, like it was considered a solid hit, um, but there's a reason that you're not necessarily as familiar with it because the top three for this year you had, number one was It Happened One Night, number two was Cleopatra, and number three was One Night of Love, which is a romantic drama starring opera singer Grace Moore that coincidentally I watched last week. Really? Total coincidence. I have a list of Oscar movies. Best Picture nominees that I haven't seen, and I've been just kind of checking them off over the last couple of years. I had a free evening, but I had to work really early the next day, so I looked up on my list what was the shortest one I could watch, and One Night of Love was like 82 minutes, and I said, I'm pulling the trigger and watching it. That's 82 minutes of love right there. It's a lot of opera, Scott. It's about 40% opera singing. Did, did it feature a candle at any point? Mm, I don't think so. No. Uh, there might have been a candle, oh. actually. Maybe maybe there was, actually. But the reason I cited like that top three, more so It Happened One Night in Cleopatra. Those are movies that actually continue to have a legacy. People have heard of them now. They'll talk about, especially It Happened One Night, which is on the Criterion Collection and one of the great romantic comedies. That movie's still talked about, whereas British Agent, despite being... You know, very expensive, um, kind of interesting just in the legacy of Warner Brothers, not particularly well known. And actually, if you look it up on Rotten Tomatoes, I don't think there's any reviews whatsoever for it. There's quite a few on IMDb, but they're all users submitted
1: so that doesn't surprise me particularly. Yeah. But, hmm. That is strange, though. I mean, do you know where this film fell over the year?
0: No. As in, where the ranking is? No, It's so hard to tell. It's it's impossible to get a really solid, say, like top 50 from that kind of era. Like you had a sense, if you look it up, you'll find like maybe a top six, maybe at best a top 10. But like the it happened one night, Cleopatra, like they were such juggernauts that it was very clear that they were way out in front of everything else. And just to
1: maybe before we get to the review, just to sort of contextualize where we are, because we don't often stray back to the 30s and 40s, although we should come here more. I think this is some very interesting stuff to look at. And we have a ton of films from the, these eras to delve into. Um, I mean, just off the top of my head, what else have we done in the 30s? The Man Who Knew Too Much originally, 39 Steps,
0: Matahari. I think that's all we've covered on this show. Um, I believe The House on... 92nd street was the 40s we've done a couple 40s but i think of the 30s you've just named them all okay yeah we should come back to the 30s i think so it's quite an interesting time we've got a couple hitchcock's uh secret agent uh i think is in the 30s at least um and uh there are a few others Uh, there is a marlena dietrich movie we're going to talk about at some point point. The problem is for some of these '30s ones is availability because we want these movies to be available to you, the listener, so you can actually watch them along with us. And some of them are just kind of in an archive somewhere, uh, waiting to, you know, show up. Probably not on a major streaming service, but maybe even something like Tubi TV or something.
1: You usually get quite lucky with some of these early ones that they turn up on YouTube. Yeah, uh, I think at least the hit. I think one of the Hitchcocks we did was on YouTube
0: this movie as well. I
1: was on YouTube, I I managed to find it on streaming here in the UK.
0: I paid for the 4.99 rental just cuz I wanted a better quality copy.
1: Yeah, the stream I found wasn't particularly good, so that was maybe a wise decision. But um yeah, so you you can get it here now. I I was reading a quick review on uh, IMDb the other day, and the chap said like you just can't get it where he was. So he had to like import a DVD. Right. He went
0: to a uh, a lot of work to watch British Agent it's one of the bummers of the streaming era at least for me as like a real film fan which is that like streaming seem to offer all of the opportunities to get all of these classic films and if anything they've in some ways made it harder where they've said we don't want anything old we want stuff from you know right now up until maybe the 80s even, even the 70s is spotty It's really like they want the 80s upwards. And so what I really hoped was when things like HBO Max launched and stuff was they'd just be like, here's the entire Warner Brothers classic archive. And that's not really been the case. It's weird because we've got uh, a really good channel here in the UK called
1: Talking Pictures TV. Um, And they just show, I mean, they they do show up to like the 80s. They do a lot of B movies, B sci-fi gets played a lot on there. But they'll do the odd spy film two or three times a week, and they have played The House on 92nd Street. Right. Yeah, They go that obscure. So we've got that, which is nice. But after that, we're in the same position as you, the Netflixes and the Amazon Primes of the world. Now, Amazon Prime has some dross on it, don't you? Don't, don't, yeah,
0: trust me on that. But uh, it doesn't really do old films. Not for free. Usually you have to pay a no. rental charge, yeah. And... There are great stuff out there, like the Criterion streaming channel obviously offers a lot, and there are a few other specialty ones, but the hope was always that things like an Amazon Prime, or especially the studio-specific ones like HBO Max, would just be like, here's the whole archive, go nuts. Which is is odd, because I'm sure it's all digitized. One would think, yeah. Like, you could just it's like flick
1: a switch. But, yeah. alas, we're not in charge of these streaming networks. Um,
0: I think I
1: think we should talk about this film cam.
0: Yeah, I had actually one other note I'll make just in case anyone was confused because I talked a lot in the notes about Warner Brothers. When you watch the movie, it has the big uh, you know, um, production slate for first national pictures off the bat. Yeah. And I was confused by this when I watched the movie because I actually did the research in advance and I was like, first national pictures. So I looked this up. It was a, um, a production company earlier in the 1900s and Warner Brothers acquired it In the 19, uh, I believe it was 1928, and they would use it for very specific movies. So things like more serious dramas, things like that. It was kind of more their prestige pictures. They would put the first national pictures um, slate on it, but they would retire it a little bit later down the road and just go full on Warner Brothers. So it's like a Miramax or something like that. Yeah, the way that Miramax owns, say, Dimension. So Dimension would put out spy kids in a lot of genre films, especially horror stuff or sci-fi, even though they all are under the Miramax umbrella. But Miramax is owned by someone else, isn't it? Disney, yeah. So it gets more complicated, but
1: nonetheless, yeah. Right, okay. Okay, I I remember seeing that, but then I didn't know about the Warner Brothers
0: thing, so I I had never heard of First Nations pictures before, though. I'm sure I've seen a movie with that, Production slate on it, but I, yeah, it's not a super common one. No. Well, th- this is a rare one because, as I said at the beginning of
1: the chat, we hadn't spoken about this film. It was like a last second decision to pull this film out from our list. So, Cam and I haven't even discussed it at this point at all. So, Cam, I'm deadly curious. <laughs> what did you think of
0: British Agent? I found this film. <sighs> I kind of gave a little bit of a clue up front where I said, like, the historical aspects of this movie can be quite complicated. At least for me, I did not have an ultra, ultra strong knowledge of what was going on in Russia during World War One, And so this movie kind of assumes you know. It does have mm-hmm. these, you know, cards that will give information, but they're a little vague. And so I found a lot of the movie intellectually, you had to really pay attention and try to follow that. And it felt like often the plot was driven far more more by historical detail than characters. And I found aspects like that a little frustrating. When we look at 1930s movies, some have aged really well. Like, I think you can look at the 39 steps and be like, wow, that still really plays. It has momentum. I don't know that this movie has momentum, but I found it fairly consistently interesting in terms of the story it was telling i mean it's not dumbed down uh it's a movie that i think you know you have to pay attention it's at least giving you a snapshot of a time in history that's interesting and i didn't know that much but it made me more interested so in a way it did its job it actually made me want to go and look you know read on wikipedia what was going on at the time and i'm more interested now in watching other films set during that time period and learning more about it so in that respect it did its job as drama, it's a little wonky. Uh, you know, it has the snapshot time and place stuff that I think is often played very well. It said this movie was expensive. I think it has some really interesting, you know, restagings of riots and things like that. But as sort of a character-driven film, it's a little stiff. It's a little talky. I mean, it's very talky. It is a very, very talky movie. And it also has, at the core of it, a romance that does not work for me. It's incredibly melodramatic. And it was sort of modeled on a, not a relationship, but like um, the Kay Francis character was sort of an amalgamation of a few people, including a woman that um, that Lockhart was uh, dating at the time. I don't know if he married her. I don't know the, I can't remember the full story there, but it was a woman he, he was having a relationship with, but it's also combined with a few other things. I like the idea of a female spy character, that has this sort of conflicted relationship with him, but it is like the swooning love story within three minutes of them meeting, and it never really sells. I, I was hoping you would come in here with a slightly different opinion, mm-hmm. I have to say,
1: but I, I honestly can't argue with any of your points. Yeah. I was... I'm always quite hesitant with older films. We know this on the show if you've been following along, but Cam, you certainly know this anyway. I always look at House of Night, Second Street as a reason why. That's like the perfect encapsulation of what I think an old film is like. This isn't <laughs> like that. No, this isn't. This is a, I wrote down this film is going at breakneck speed. It's 80 minutes. It, what? Not just the fact that it's 80 minutes. It fits like a, what would be a three-hour film in Hollywood now into 80 minutes. And I wouldn't say it doesn't do it successfully. I think it tells its story successfully. I just don't think it has anything for you to connect to. It's like you're reading a book, but it's it's a history book. There's no actual like romance. It, it's not a dramatization. It's basically like a, a what? It's a, it's a docu drama, I suppose in that sense. It's not, but um, yeah, you know, you, you're watching it, and you kind of you're introduced to Leslie Howard, and he's like, okay, I can get behind this guy. That's fine. He meets. Elena he saves her from uh, one of the russian guards or police officers or, or whatever he was soldiers perhaps i think they referred to him as a cossack so yeah yes you're right it's a cossacks yes right um saves him from them and they're immediately in love and it's not just like <laughs> a, a a a blossoming romance it's you know she's willing to give up her communism for him and she you know Communism at that point was quite the—I don't want to say cult, but you know, quite the—it was quite a following. It was—it was quite a powerful movement, let's say that. And for her to give that up was quite a statement, and I don't think they earned that at all. Whereas the entire film is based around caring about what happens to these star-crossed lovers, you know, capitalism versus communism versus the heart, which sounds nice. But when you're, like, barreling through this 18-minute film trying to tell this, you know, quite a long story of espionage in Russia, which is quite this cool little side of history that no one really talks about. Like, when I approached my brother to give me sort of the lowdown, he's like, I've never really spoken about this. We don't teach it in school. Yeah. Quite interesting. He he cares about it because he likes that sort of side of history. And I don't think I've ever heard of a Russian spy story in this era. So I, on that sense, they're giving us a, a cool story.
0: I just I think there was a a better way to deliver it than this. Did you find just the historical events very burdensome to try to navigate? Well, I had to. Uh, I watched it the first time. Luckily, it's eighty minutes, as we said. Yeah. I had
1: I I just sat through the first watch. And I was like, okay, I guess like the title cards you mentioned are kind of helpful. Like three or four times in the film, they give you these little exposition dumps which is helpful but like i i was sort of just like shrugging at it really like I, I was pretending it wasn't particularly important but when i go back to think about it knowing the history is very important to this film like you need to know you need to know who lenin
0: is if you don't know who lenin is it doesn't make any sense no that's very true and even like uh, trotsky as well who plays a pretty yeah. significant role and I mean, I think at the time, if you were an audience member going to this, the book is a bestseller and caused quite a stir. Apparently, so I would imagine a fair number of people have, would have read the book, but they'd also be much more aware of World War One history, I would think, because they would have been very, you know, they would have been tracking what's going on at that time versus removed almost a hundred years.
1: Well, it's like if I asked you over a hundred, yeah. Yeah. if I asked you what was happening in the Middle East. If sure. I asked you what was happening in the Middle East ten years ago. You could maybe tell me who were the powers at that point. Right. And and what was happening roughly. Um and if I told a story in that and I painted my picture within that canvas, you'd probably follow along because you're aware of popular culture and news and Russia and, and the United States and NATO and Terrorism, all that sort of stuff, sort of intertwined into that section of the world. But yeah, I rewatching it now. If I sat someone down, like if this if this made the knocklist, for instance, it would have to go on the knocklist
0: with like a guidebook. <laughs> yeah, and as people that cover spy films, we tackle a lot of Cold War stuff. Mm-hmm. So, like, the Russia of, the, like, you know, the 1960s and 70s and 80s and all that sort of stuff is something we experience time and time again on this podcast, whether through serious films or James Bond. You know, like, they will touch on it in ways. So, you kind of absorb some of the information, the necessary information, just through osmosis of watching some of these movies. Whereas the World War One era was—that was where I struggled with this movie. And it did— I, I struggle because as a work of like film storytelling, I don't think it's that successful because I think it would just genuinely confuse a lot of people in terms of aging. Maybe in 1934, people were like, I'm on board 100%. I understand all of this. But played now, it's very confusing and it doesn't have kind of that sweep of history that I think we've been kind of... Taught to kind of you know watch nowadays when you see a film set in a in a you know past era they I think do a pretty solid job conveying what was going on at the time in a way that audiences can kind of soak up very easily. This film throws a lot at you, and so in that regard, it it's not a movie that I think plays dramatically as well as it should. It doesn't have a lot of momentum for. You know, Stephen Locke's mission. And I don't, I guess they changed the name from Lockhart to Locke. I don't know why they should have just kept Lockhart. But nonetheless, there's not a lot of like propulsiveness to what he's doing. Mm-hmm. You're more kind of just observing this snapshot of history and what one guy was sort of doing at the time. When we watched a movie like Bridge of Spies, which kind of a similar story in some ways of a guy who off the books is journeying into, you know, Russian territory. To try to broker something, um, I think that movie does a far better job just dramatically pulling you into his story versus this film, which is a little more—you kind of watch it somewhat emotionally removed.
1: Well, I I
0: I would agree with your point. One thing I was sort of thinking while you were
1: talking, and uh, something I sort of noted to myself in my own review and my notes, is I can hear people who are listening to this going, "Well, that's unfair," because we know. Say, for instance, if this story was told and it was about what was happening in World War I and it was in the UK mm. or it was in North America, I feel like we would feel more connected to it. But because it's connected to a state neither of us are particularly aware of the history of, mm-hmm. we are instantly going, well, I don't understand it. Mm-hmm. But that's more our lack of knowledge hindering our experience and our enjoyment of the film than necessarily the film's lack of delivery. But what I will say... Is I think the film still fails to convey the message and to sort of contextualize
0: where the film is. And it's also an American film, right? Like it's a Warner Brothers production being pitched to, in that case, predominantly, I guess, a North American audience, although, you know, obviously Great Britain was very important to them as well, given that they were willing to make concessions to, you know, uh, appease the censors. So it really. If it's a movie coming out of Russia, I would view it very differently versus something that's being pitched as something you'll be playing in a theater to a general audience in, you know, North America. Is this like the 30s version of dating itself? Like, is this the,
1: like, I don't know, a modern drama and someone walks up and goes, yo, 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 homies,
0: what's up? <laughs> in some ways, yes. In terms of the storytelling, I think there's a staginess to some of it, as well as just... I think things like some of the romance aspects are very dated. But there's other movies of this era that you'll come across that are just very creaky in terms of a craftsmanship level. And that's not the case here. I think this one, it's sort of frustrations for me are more storytelling driven and just the characters are very thin. Like, I would just like to do, I would just like to know more about the characters and visit them in a way where it's not based around melodrama. I would like to just get to know them more as individuals. And the movie doesn't give me that. So I guess in that regard, yes, it's kind of a simplistic approach. That part's aged. But I think in terms of like an 80-minute movie, this did not feel like I was watching something super creaky and awkward.
1: No, I, I agree. I think it it's, uh, it's successful in trying to keep your attention. You're not like staring at your phone throughout. Mm-hmm. But I don't, I don't care about the romance between the two of them. I almost would rather it had been 90 minutes and I had 5 more minutes for each character just to give
0: them some life. I think it would be just as compelling if they just forged like a friendship. And again, this is a 1930s movie. That's not going to be the case between a male and a female character. That's not what a studio a major studio, studio was going to give an audience uh, ultimately, but it was even just like the way they framed it and like they have the meeting as you said where she um has shot a uh, Cossack who is attacking a woman um, wanders onto the embassy to try to just, you know, find some safety, stumbles into him. And you're like, okay, they, they have some sparks. I'll buy it. The, you know, these are two attractive actors. I'm willing to buy that these two people could be, you know, they could have some sparks. But the way they kind of frame it, where they're just like hanging out um, at an apartment making coffee, and he's like, the whole bean holds the flavor in. And she's like, oh my god she is just swooning <laughs> as this guy's like talking about whole beans and flavor and i'm like okay and there's also a scene um even before that where they run into each other at a tavern and i like that sequence where there's like a tavern singer it has a lot of atmosphere where the the guy the diplomats go to hang out because they're not really doing anything otherwise <laughs> and i well i will stop you just because yeah. you're on that i was
1: going to come back to that scene but yeah because you mentioned it did you find that to be the weirdest cut in the entire film? Uh, no, I have another one. So why is that one weird to you? Well, it's just like they're they're all sat at a table going, oh, uh, Stephen Locke's quite sad. And then one goes, let's go to the gypsy bar. Swoosh! Like you're you're in the gypsy bar, like instantaneously, and they're blaring music in your face. I jumped the first time they did it. I didn't know how they got there.
0: I was like, what is this? That one didn't phase me. I'll, I'll reveal mine in a sec, but... So they, you know, meet at this tavern again. Nice set. It's I, I really actually like the location. Um, and then they leave, and they're just like he just like aggressively kisses her out of nowhere, and you're like, whoa, pull up, pull up.
1: I, I think he was pulling up.
0: Oh, no kidding. <laughs> uh. Um, and it's like they'd known each other for maybe an hour at that point. Maybe that's just how people flirted back in the thirties maybe maybe because it turns into from there from after their you know their kiss and the coffee bean talk it is like i love you i've never met anyone else like you and i want to be with you for the rest of my life and that is kind of what carries them through the rest of the movie well i, I will just say it's clear that you're not a coffee
1: drinker cam because if someone starts talking to me about the whole bean well oof. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy hold me back <laughs> that's how you met your fiance, <laughs> right there, there was a joke there i'm not gonna make thank you I'll, I'll move on let's um let's talk about some things that we liked because we're kind of bagging on the film little. let list. me just oh, say, I, i'll just name my most awkward cut i was gonna come back to you because i figured it'd
0: be in the in the dislikes but uh, uh, okay. i've got other things so all right all okay right. Go so on, the uh the awkward cut for me was there's a section where um he has made the pitch as to you know how they could um hold off this peace treaty he's going to offer them you know money and munitions and all that it does this cut to london and we get this like tinkly music as it shows like the london setting and it has like you know some of the muckety-mucks in london and they say hmm, something must be done cut <laughs> and it cuts away immediately <laughs> and i was like whoa what
1: was that <laughs> i went and looked this film does have an editor
0: yeah someone professionally edited this together. Uh eh, you know what? I'm going to cut some slack on the editing of a 1934 film. If it made us both jump, I think it's a bit it's comical at best. Yeah, it's a little awkward.
1: Yeah. Um <laughs> I mean, it, I will remember this. I I will even call that a British agent cut if I ever mm. see it again. I'm going <laughs> to I'm naming a lot of things after this film. I'm going to keep this gag going for many weeks. So don't worry about that.
0: We interrupt this program to bring you a special report.
1: Calling all agents. Independent podcasting, much like the spy game, requires considerable resources. Whether it's research, equipment, hosting, or of course, constructing a top
0: secret volcano lair, we're putting out the call for your support. That's right. As you may know, we've activated the Spy Hearts Patreon home of our ever-growing lineup of Agents in the Field episodes where we decode non-spy films from your favorite spy actors and full film commentaries with more intel than a Basil Exposition briefing. Cam, what have we got in our crosshairs this month? Well, the Thunderball commentary is live and we are tackling... Da-dun, 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 The Pink Panther from 1963. And if that sounds delicious then become a true spy hard
1: today and join the circus at patreon.com slash but before this message self-destructs cam resume the spy jinx let's talk about likes and i'm going to start i liked that this film didn't suffer fools hmm. it reminded me a lot of funeral in berlin in that sense it does reward you paying attention Paying attention, reading those title cards, listening to the dialogue, which does explain some of the stuff, not all of it, but I think if you watch the film and pay attention to everything, you can get somewhat of a good experience out of it. I, I'm i so used to watching films these days. Uh, I haven't seen uh, Doctor Strange at this point, but I can only imagine there's so many lines of exposition in that film that it's insane. I would
0: imagine so. I mean, uh, most movies now are very exposition heavy, and this movie is... To a degree as well. A lot of what's going on is the characters describing the histor the historical aspects. But I think why it kind of works, and it kind of ties into something I like about the movie, is that you actually have these recreations of historical moments, like the riots and you know, the revolution kicking in, and that sort of stuff. It was staged very well in ways that I found genuinely involving to watch. So even though they were giving me, you know, often it was often a very talky movie. I felt like I was at least getting some payoff to it versus, you know, remember when we talked about Operation Crossbow and there was like scenes where there was those dudes standing around a table talking for like 17 minutes straight and you're like, I get it, I get it. Whereas in this case, I was actually quite thankful when it cut back to the guys around the table because they could explain to an idiot like me what's going on.
1: I I suppose on the flip side of that, it it makes you feel like you have to take notes. And I was. And some people want to go well there you go so people want to go to the theaters and just be like just show me a nick cage action film right okay cool i'm going home and that was it that that that's their interaction with a film which is absolutely fine it's more or less how i visit the cinemas but um i think maybe i was in the mood for it today maybe i was in the mood for a film that actually pushed you a little bit but i had to go and speak to my brother to get the contextualization because the film didn't give it to me
0: and that's one thing on this show i think we've We've encountered a few movies that have tackled, you know, times and places that we weren't ultra familiar with. And this movie, I'm sure there's better stories of this out there. But this one made me actually want to find something that was maybe maybe a little more dramatically compelling for me. Like, this one kind of did its job as sort of a, a bit of a tester for me of like, oh, I'd like to know more about that.
1: Well, speaking of uh, dramatically uh, relevant, I think that's what you said. Uh, I had another like. Yeah. I have two likes. One's a silly one. And that is we got a connection to Comrade Veidt in The Spy in Black. Okay. They referenced butter, didn't they? Hell yes. The butter shortage of England, apparently. So I I can understand the jubilation on Comrade Veidt's face. I
0: mean, he is the man who smiles, and uh, he was smiling when he saw that butter. And I've got another connection. Conrad Veidt, jumping off of the butter. We're gonna go from the butter to Conrad Veit. Conrad Veit was the um inspiration for the Joker for his performance in The Man Who Laughs. And this movie featured a Joker actor. No way. The fellow with the mustache, who was one of the diplomats of the you know, the there was the group of four. The one with the mustache who played um, I believe the character's name was um Tito Delval was played by Cesar Romero, who played the Joker on the 1966 Batman show.
1: Boom. Mm-hmm. Look at that. Where's Ian from Cult Connections when you need him? That's a perfect <laughs> one right there. Yeah. Get him on the show. Ah, well, I like that sort of stuff. That's good. But my other like to bring us back was the fact that the film didn't dwell. Actually it actually kind of connects to your like, to be fair. It didn't dwell on characters. Not only did it off almost everyone, Yeah, which is inter- which is refreshing, but also, like those people in the boardroom, they're there for 90 seconds in the entire film. It didn't need to keep going back to them. We didn't need more exposition. You can get it from someone else. It was about, like, there's a, there's a phrase for it that I'm forgetting. It's about, like, using your characters wisely. Economical? Uh, um. Yes. Yes, economical use of your characters. It didn't need to have anyone else for any longer than they stayed. No. And I appreciate that we were like, we're offering them to add dramatic stakes. You were killing people. And you weren't just cutting back to see what was going on with. Um, who was the chap that was dying? Stalin. Lenin. No, Lenin. Sorry, it wasn't Stalin. Stalin was later. You weren't constantly going back to Lenin to see if he'd rolled over in bed and woken up from his coma. You got the one bit that he's ill. And then the update, he was okay at the end. Mm-hmm. I like that.
0: Yeah. Well, it's like. When a movie like this moves fairly briskly, and not in a way where it feels like it's been hacked to shreds, it just is a no. pretty fast-paced movie. Because I can think of a movie like, say, like the Jonah Hex adaptation from a handful of years ago, which was clearly hacked to shreds in his 72 minutes, and you're like, I can't understand anything that's going on. That's not the case 72 here. minutes? Something like that. Yeah, you remove credits, it's like 70-something minutes. But um, this movie is fast-paced, but it's intentionally fast-paced. It's trying to get across sort of the high-pressure situation that Stephen Locke's uh, character, you know, Stephen Locke is in. Um, and that it gets bogged down, I find, with the historical aspects, just my lack of familiarity. But in terms of being kind of a concise 80-minute story, it pulls that off. One thing I really like about this movie, and I I wish it had been explored in a different angle, I would totally watch a, a movie about, you know, Kay Francis's character, Elena Moura, who was modeled on, you know, a real person um i would like to know more about just her character because someone who's sort of torn between you know the stephen lock character and then her commitment to communism and she is like working with trotsky that's pretty fascinating i would like to know more about what her journey is that is a character that could inspire a whole other movie and i found just generally she was a very compelling screen presence and i just wanted to know more about her character which is where some of my frustration came up front where I was like, I want to spend more time getting to know these just as characters free of the romance. Because the romance is the least interesting part. That's all like a cliche versus like the career this woman has, where she stands within history. That's fascinating. Well, this probably takes us over to dislikes because I,
1: I completely agree. It's um, it, I always refer to it on the show as the gotcha problem. Yeah. Where you want to spend more time with Linda Fiorentina than you do with Anthony Hatton. Edwards. And I think this is the same thing. I would like to see more from her than I really wanted to see from Stephen Locke. Um, But I suppose that then leads us on to, which we've already discussed, that the fundamental flaw in the relationship is the fact that there is no connection or chemistry between those two characters. And I think one of the reasons it's so flawed is because she's pontificating that she doesn't want to betray communism to Trotsky at one point. But you never feel her connection to it. So you never understand the sacrifice she's making. And so really all she's doing is going back to her lover. So you don't feel any
0: sort of like sympathy for her. There are moments where you get a sense that she, I mean, of of the spy characters, she's probably the closest to a spy we have in the movie. Um, you have a moment, I think like Stephen Locke, it's. Int- I would have to imagine drastic changes were made to that book. You'll have to mention it in your uh, full-length commentary. Um, but uh, one hundred pounds a month, please. I can guarantee this. This feels pretty Hollywood esque when you have like a scene where Stephen Locke is sitting there with a coded um, message, reading it out loud in a room with her, like sitting like right in the next room. And this is like nineteen. What. 1918 or 17 or whatever uh, I would imagine the sound insulation was not particularly strong and if you are getting coded transmissions from Britain that are top secret you're probably not going to read them out loud as you're decoding them to someone who actually has already told me works for the correct communists yeah uh
1: well I I wrote down in my notes it's actually a dislike so I suppose it connects to the section too he is Locke is perhaps the dumbest spy we've ever encountered
0: on the show exactly and, like, he does that, and that may be, like, the the biggest boneheaded move he makes. He makes a few, but that might be the biggest one. And she takes that information and actually takes it back to her boss. And to me, like, the conflict comes in more so when it comes to they want um, her essentially to get a forged check so that he can be arrested. And that's where, for her, the conflict comes in of if Stephen Locke is arrested, chances are he is going to be uh, executed. And... So I would just like to know more about the conflict within that character. And Stephen Locke, he's a little stuffy as a lead. And a lot of his um, role within the movie is kind of defined by inaction. It's a lot of him sitting around waiting because nothing's going on and he's getting frustrated about that. And you do get moments where he does. He gets to go and actually, you know, make his pitch to try to prevent the peace. Stuff like that is great. But a lot of it is other characters around him are more active. So whether it is her or whether it's um, some of those other diplomat guys he's hanging out with who are actively like running out in the streets to go and try to achieve something and getting shot for it, but they are all kind of doing things versus Stephen Locke, who often is confined to a location. Yeah, he's played as like the leader of the group because he's like
1: negotiating with that general and things like that, but he's not really an active agent in that, uh, if you'll pardon the pun, um, in any of that work because they set the meeting up and therefore, pushing the agenda forward, really, those those friends. I do want to... And that is my next dislike. I want to talk about those friends. Before I pivot, I was just looking at Kay Francis's uh, list of films. Yeah. And the first one that popped up is called The House on 56th Street. <laughs> the prequel? <laughs> well, it would be the sequel, wouldn't it? 92nd? 56th? Oh, 92nd, you're right. Yeah, it would be the... Be, it's the prequel. It's only 68 minutes, so... Uh, Look forward to that uh, Spy Master interview on Patreon there. No, what am I talking about? Interview. We're going back in time. (laughs) Yeah, so look out for that on our next uh, Agents in the Field episode on Patreon. I'm sure you'll all be uh, shooting over to Patreon. You're already coming over to hear me read the book. So, come for the book. Stay
0: for 56th Street. That's what I always say. You know what? Maybe it's time for our second announcement is that you're actually going to do an audio book (laughs) of the British agent and just read it aloud. (laughs) I'm doing all the parts unabridged. <laughs> yeah, I,
1: I I will be using uh I'll, I'll be using British voices for all of them, even the Russians, <laughs> of course. Uh, yeah. Well, I I so back to the point I was going to say, and I think my top dislike is the film does a lot of work to set up this like group of friends he has. So I, I think it's uh Lafarge, you've got uh, Bob Medal, and there's one more I can't find on the list, Tito Delval. Tito, thank you. Um, and they're kind of like his posse, like his ambassador friends. I think one's like American, French, maybe Italian, something like that. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure.
0: I it never. Well, the film never tells you.
1: Yeah. So we're just guessing based on accents, which is unfortunate,
0: but we're just trying our best. Also, this movie's accents are all over the place, just in general. So yeah.
1: Yeah, there's actually, while you're there, there's one scene where there, I think like Trotsky's in the room, Lenin's in the room, uh, Locke's in the room, and it's meant to be a British guy and a bunch of Russians, but one of the guys working for Russia is just a a Brit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a full-on British and He's not even trying to have like a slight twang. It's yeah. just a
0: hello, mate. Do you want me to sweep your chimneys? <laughs> Like Dick Van Dyke, um, yeah. <laughs> there's also a lot of the uh you know classic and common of the time, but the mid atlantic accent they would use where it was sort of that in between British and North American English and uh, yeah, I mean a lot of actors use that at the time, the carry Grant. yeah,
1: yeah well i I wrote down because the film does a little bit of work to set this group up they're kind of like Stephen Locke's friends, mm-hmm. and I like the fact that they're all kind of. They've all got endings to them, in their own way. They're all, yeah, their stories are ended one yeah. way or another. Some very abruptly, but it's. I, I, I wrote down these guys remind me of of uh, the friends from Taken. Yeah, they just show up, they dump exposition. Oh man, good
0: call. Play cards and leave. We just needed a scene of them golfing and taking a phone call and a barbecue and a barbecue. Yeah, yeah. And we need, I guess, a part three where they actually get to do something. And then one of them's really bad at their job. <laughs> of
1: course. <laughs> wait, wait, Hang on. Which one is the chap who... Uh, which one is the main guy of his friends? He's like the tech guy. I, I guess that would be uh, Bob uh, William, William Gargan, right? I guess that would point up being him. As Bob Medell, the American, yeah. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. But yeah, so I, I, I guess our
0: this is the British version of Taken in a sense. And I mean, some of those endings, one of them, it, I'm like, is this supposed to be funny? Because there's the part where I believe it's the French one runs out and um, finds uh, a colonel. He goes, well, colonel, I finally found you and smash cut to them being executed. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> okay, like there is like a, you know, dark inevitability to all of this. Just the, and it shows the violence that's raging on the streets and how you can just be caught and killed instantly. But at the same time, just the smash cut was like something you would see almost in a sitcom or something.
1: I I never get this in in films, and I maybe because I well I know I have been faced with death a, a few times in my life actually, so I I can't really speak to this particular scenario though personally. But whenever I see this in films or TV, when someone's being like marched to their death, I just think why the why the f are you walking? Yeah. Oh, I'll just neatly stand against this wall, thank you. Oh, you want me to make a meter distance between the other guys? Sure thing, governor. Uh,
0: Yeah, I don't buy that for an absolute second. The one that kind of made me laugh was when, you know, Bob the American is captured and being tortured. And I could not tell how they were torturing him. Could you tell what they were doing? Look, they were tickling him. (laughs) That's what it looked like. It looked like they were doing, like, wet willies (laughs) in his ear or something.
1: (laughs) Oh, oh, stop.
0: (laughs) But it was like... You know, and again, this is a 1934 American film, and it was a real, like, American, like, <laughs> you'll never get it out of me, and he's kind of wisecracking his way through the torture and everything, and I'm like, that sounds about right. Mm. Yeah, I-, I enjoyed that character. I really did. <laughs> that's, that's what it is. It, it I would have liked a little bit more
1: of those guys because they were kind of fun to be around. It was quite fun, but that's what happens when you give people unique personalities
0: and some, like, quirks, whereas I don't think Stephen Locke had a quirk. I think the biggest problem here was... They were basing it around a real story around this, you know, Lockhart guy. And so often, especially like when I see biopics of this time, I've seen a number of them of the 30s and 40s, is that they play the character that they are inhabiting, who's a real person, incredibly straight, where it's like this person has no faults whatsoever. And often that comes across as kind of bland. And I found Stephen Locke kind of bland. Yeah, I, I, I was just about to make a
1: comparison to him in my head, but I couldn't think of who I was thinking of. But it might come back to me. But yeah, he is, well, milk toast. Yeah, like it, it, there's nothing like. He looks nice, mm-hmm. I, easy on the eye. That chap, I can see why he was a a star of film. I get that completely, but um, I couldn't,
0: I couldn't pick him out of a lineup, and like. Leslie Howard, I've seen in a number of things where he's like really charming. I think of like the movie Pygmalion, which he did back in the day. That was another best picture project movie for me that I ticked off. But he's like really charming in that. There's a lot of movies of this era. This one, he has moments. Like this is a young diplomat here and someone, you know, they keep saying, oh, you're so young. You're not an old man with a long beard like so many of the other, um, you know, diplomats that he's kind of working around. So there is like a youth aspect to him. I just want a little more of a spark to him because he's a little too stiff for me. Yeah, you're right though. He has like moments of like
1: almost comedy at times, especially with uh, with our man Poobah. Mm, yeah, uh, but then like he'll then just pensively look out of a window for five minutes. Right, and that's not really riveting. And then like all the romance is not particularly captivating. So you just sort of go, okay,
0: bring me, bring back Pooba. <laughs> Poor Pooba. And Puba <laughs> is like his um assistant that he names Puba and Pooba pays horribly for being his assistant. <laughs> he really he really goes down swinging that Pooba. Like, he does. he's he's defending that embassy till his last dying breath. There's a moment though getting back to Locke at the end where um Mora uh, Elena Mora has come to try to help him because he's in this munitions warehouse or i guess it was a building but whatever he's surrounded by munitions the russians or the soviets i guess at this point if the soviets are in in power are coming to take over and you know basically execute him and she gets ahead of them and goes in and they have like five minutes before the uh, the soviet forces are going to open fire and blow him up most likely and she goes in and it turns into the scene where she's like cuddling with him on a couch as a ticking clock is going down. This Her character knows what's coming. And I'm watching her face play out of like the tension of like she wants to be with them. But she knows they have mere moments until they're both going to be killed if she stays. And I'm buying everything she's selling in that moment. He has this glazed over expression. And I'm just like, this dude is so dull. <laughs> He's so dull. <laughs> I'm gonna take you to a place
1: in Cumbria. It's so nice. We can stand it goes one of the advertising parts of this like uh, maybe it was in Surrey or it's in Cumbria, he wants to buy a little house in a village, is apparently on Sundays they all get dressed up to the nines and then stand outside and just look. Yeah. In silence. That's what they do. It it sounds like something out of like Shaun of the Dead. Or Hot <laughs> Fuzz, sorry. Hot Fuzz, yeah. Um, Whether the, the townsfolk are just like completely like brainwashed, maybe that is where he wanted to move to. But I, I actually, I'm glad you mentioned the ending because that's something I had probably my last dislike I wanted to bring up. And I, I get this is based on a true story. Maybe it's loosely based on a true story. So this maybe happened. Uh, to. Arch Locke. What's, what's his name again, sorry? Lockhart. Lockhart's his real name. I should I should remember that because of the character Flashheart from the Blackadder TV show. But so as camp set up, they're in this house. The Soviets are about to blow them up to kill Lock because Lock is a wanted man because he is a foreign agent against the Soviet state. And basically, you think their number's up You hear, like, the guns are going off. They're shooting out the windows. Uh, Elena thinks it's all over. It's not, because the bells start ringing conveniently due to uh, factoring into his sentence about this perfect village that he wants to live in. And uh, apparently Lenin is fine. Lenin has woken up. It's a deus ex Lenina. Can I admit something to you, Cam? What? I had the same thing in
0: my notes. Hell yes. This is why we are co-hosting this podcast.
1: I will send you a photo afterwards just for proof, everyone. I, I need to prove this to Cam because it's not some like podcast trickery. Uh yeah, Deus Ex Lenina. He saves the day, I guess. Lenin is saving lives. Um and so he gets to just leave the country
0: with Elena, I guess. I say there is zero chance any of that played out in real life the way that it does in the movie. Zero chance. It's r- kind of ridiculous in the way. And you have the bells, you know, going back and forth. And I think they say, like, stop the terror, stop the terror. <laughs> it's like, okay, fine. I mean, and also, not only that, not only do they get away just scot free because Lennon has awoken and apparently said, stop the terror. Um, Lennon has awoken. But yeah, it cuts to them getting on a train to leave, and also the American Bob is out asking for gum again. So clearly, they let him go too. <laughs> he didn't get executed.
1: No, no, he had to get his gum. Yeah, like they needed to—they needed to resolve the gum situation. They let that. They they left the plot thread dangling. They had to sew that up, Cam. That was his whole
0: character, really. It was the gum thing. He had more than the Stephen Locke. Although, I mean, I guess we do have that Stephen Locke enjoys the whole bean versus the ground coffee. So we do have that. No, I, absolutely. We'll always have the whole bean.
1: That's right. Mm. That's right. Well, I think before we drift on over to the knock list, Cam, I mean, this is an 80 minute film, so we're not going to have an hour and a half's worth for you this week, folks. Well, For me, I have a couple of quick notes. I mean, it, the film opens, apart from the title card, with this weird like credit sequence out of like a. I don't know, an 80s sitcom where you just got, like the actor's name and like a gurning face for each person so you know who they are because the film doesn't take any time to set any characters up particularly. But that, I, I found that a really weird intro to the film. Did you catch that?
0: Yeah, it's the sort of thing you would see in the end credits of, say, the movie Predator, for example. They do it there. Ah, um, okay. You'll see yeah, it yeah. the odd time. Um, I would suspect in that, in that period it was more like because – it's Warner Brothers, right? And you're all working with your actors you have under contract. Mm. And so I would imagine a lot of it is they want the audience to match the faces to these characters so that you'll remember Warner Brothers actors because they're trying to make stars, right? Okay. I, I, I get
1: that. That makes sense. I, my next note was based on uh, old Puba, uh announcing the arrival of Stephen Locke. I just want people to announce when I arrive at places now. I'm willing to do that in Las Vegas this summer.
0: Well, I'm getting married. You might have to. Oh, oh, good call. Good call. Oh. Uh What about you? I had, there was a line that really made me laugh where when they're at that tavern and the singer comes over to their table and there's like the alcohol that she's going to drink and one of the guys says, if her eyes don't water, she's not a good girl. <laughs> I, I had to
1: look that line up, but it, it made me cr- like, ooh. That is some 1930s morality going on right there. <laughs> is, are, are they drinking an Istanbul Express?
0: I don't know. What does that mean? Do you not remember that from Condor Man? Oh, it's been, oh, were those those were on fire, right? Yes. Okay. That's true. They
1: were on fire. These that's were not true. on fire, folks. It was not a, an Istanbul Express and hardly a double or a triple.
0: Yeah. But that line just—it's so 1930s chauvinistic. But it just—it it was one where I couldn't help but laugh when I heard it. I, I yeah, I heard
1: it. and I was like, "Did I hear that?" And I had to go look up like the quotes on IMDb. It's one of the only two quotes referenced on IMDb. Yeah. So someone else has been like, "Huh," and written it down too. Now I had one last note, and it's more of a question. Okay. Uh, me and you were both noted from very early on in the show that we are uh, work to live, not live to work, kind of people. Yeah. Uh, Stephen Locke feels like a live-to-work kind of guy. He's sitting in that embassy. He hasn't been told what to do. He could just sit on his hands and not do anything. What would you do?
0: Well, he's just kind of saying, well, they forgot about me. I would have been charging out of there at the first drop of a hat like so many others were. I would not have been still sitting around with those three other dudes playing cards. Yeah, I think
1: I'm the same. I, I would have been on that first uh, train out of uh, the
0: soon-to-be USSR. And that's something I would imagine the book probably would have dealt with as to exactly why he didn't get evacuated with everyone else. Well, eventually he's given
1: orders to stay and try and stop them from signing a peace treaty with the Germans. Eventually. But there's a yeah, there's a big old gap there, and I think it's it's quite the risk. But then I get the whole idea that he's like kind of like a quite gung ho, trying to prove himself guy whereas you know, he's quite young in his role as as we pointed out. So he's kind of trying
0: to prove his point, like he he's up for the task, I suppose. I guess. I mean maybe it's just that youthful I feel invincible and uh I'm in no hurry. Uh I don't feel youthful no. or invincible. No. So uh yeah, I will take the uh first
1: train and I'll take all the gum with me. Yep, yep. No kidding. Right. Well uh speaking of trains, let's hop on board and head straight on over to Knoxville never used that before. That's weird. (laughs) Um, Cam, British agent. Is it making the knock list?
0: No, no. This one isn't making the knock list for me. Uh, We talked about some of the other 1930s movies we've covered, and I just think there's a few examples there that have held up better. Uh, I would be pointing people in the direction of 39 Steps, for example. If you're looking for a 1930s spy film that's fantastic, I would point to that one. Or even The Man Who Knew Too Much... Um, original version, even Matahari, probably over this one. I think this one is probably going to be more interesting for people that are real history buffs who would like to see a 1930s take on this particular time and place. But I think people looking for just like a kind of brisk, involving spy film, they might find some barriers preventing them from enjoying this one fully. Uh, I would agree. It's a no for me, too.
1: I mean, you didn't mention Spy in Black, which came out in 39.
0: Right, yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, uh,
1: I, only because I just checked it. It's not off the top of my head. Don't worry. Um, even that's a far more involved story. With I, I think a better connection, a, a better love story. Yeah, in that one too, I would say check out any of the ones you just mentioned or
0: Spy and Black before this. I, I, it's not the worst film we've ever watched on this show, no, by and, any stretch. And we we talked about uh, House on Ninety Second Street. Like that was one that felt very creaky and had it aged quite poorly whereas i would say this one aged in some ways but feels like it holds up a little bit better than say a house of a house on 92nd street you could tell there's a talented filmmaker in there yeah
1: um i i think this would probably only be the recommend for i don't know enthusiasts of world war one history perhaps that have like that know the story so have it already had it contextualized and it's more about people playing within the realm that you understand but if if you are anyone with a general knowledge of that period of time, I think you will struggle to watch
0: this film. And it's kind of insane to me that Michael Curtiz directs The Adventures of Robin Hood four years later, and you just watch that movie and how timeless it feels, and you go like, "Holy smokes!" Like just the the leap in production quality of movies that happened in a very short span of time is so mind-boggling to me. Which is crazy as well, because we just, I think by this point,
1: or soon to be by this point, we'll be tackling uh, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves on our Patreon-exclusive Agents in the Field series with old Kevin Costner. So uh, yeah, check that out if you want to hear our thoughts on that film over on patreon.com slash spyhards. But in terms of this week's film, British Agent, it's two no's, And as such, it's not making the knock list and the dossier on the film is complete
0: and filed as classified. Cam, what are we doing next week? Yes, we are tackling the 2021 World War II spy thriller Munich, The Edge of War, starring George McKay. This is one, it's on Netflix, and many people have seen it. I have not. And why not remedy that? Yeah it's it's,
1: uh, it's quite the contrast from this week's film one you can barely get a hold of and one that's basically available absolutely everywhere uh we thought we would change it up and go for quite a recent one too we've uh, we tend not to go too recent with our films but over the next couple of months we've got a couple of 2021 2022 films coming out that we're reviewing um just sort of change it up a little bit so yeah check out that and also next week we'll have a spy master interview with the writer of the film ben power on the friday so double bill next week any munich edge of war fans or people that like that era check it out next week and uh, we once again ask, if you like what you hear on the show, please consider leaving us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, anything like that. It helps discovery of the show and basically just shares the Spy Hard love. And speaking of, do not forget to follow us discreetly on social media at SpyHards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, just remember, Poor old pooper.
0: He never introduced himself by name and, and
1: then he excused himself and there I was. I was now communicating with somebody from the KGB. He exposed more than
0: 1600 Soviet bloc intelligence officers, and his information led to the breaking of some of the most serious KGB and Polish intelligence rings in the West. Just two short
1: excerpts from the Cold War Conversations podcast. Go check us out wherever you listen to your podcasts.